I'm Modaresi Tirani. You're watching HuffPost Live. Former United States Ambassador Zalmay Khalilzad has watched America's foreign policy unfold over the course of several presidencies while holding various positions inside the Pentagon and the White House. In his new book, The Envoy, Khalilzad explains his involvement in several critical moments in American foreign policy and he joins me now to discuss. Ambassador, thank you for joining us. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you with us. Now, thank you, you. you were referred to in the press as uh, President George W. Bush's favorite Afghan. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. what was your relationship like with the president? Well, with uh, President uh, George W. Bush, I was uh, working in the White House immediately after the election. Uh, result finally was decided by the Supreme Court. Uh, uh, you're too young to remember. Paula. I remember it very well. Don't flatter me, Ambassador. Yeah, yes. So I was uh, uh, initially sent to the Pentagon to uh, take over the transition from the Clinton administration to Bush. But I ended up working in the White House, not staying in the Pentagon, uh, as a special assistant to the president and uh, 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 with responsibility for Afghanistan, as Iran, Southwest Asia. Uh, so when 9-11 happened, I was there and uh, as someone who knew a little bit about Afghanistan, given that I was born there and I had uh, spent the first uh, 15 years of my life there. And, uh, and then I had worked with the State Department in the 1980s uh, with the Afghan resistance at that time fighting the Soviet. Uh, uh, I knew uh, a little bit about Afghanistan, so he, uh, uh, he, he and I developed a relationship where I, uh, I could go and brief him on Afghanistan matters. Well, I was going to say, the, the fact that you know, he, he thought of you in, in those glowing terms, it does have a, a large degree of, uh, of response to your own experience, uh, right. as you mentioned. Right. Lots of people, I think, aftermath, obviously hindsight is always, sure. uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a benefit when we have it. but. People were saying that after the uh, relationship between Afghanistan and the, the Soviet Union, uh, there were some clear indicators then of ways that the United States should have either been involved or taken threats more seriously than they did. And you were one of those people. Right. Uh, what was not listened to that you put on the table that should have been? Well, I think uh, this is a, a very important point, especially for young people who uh, hopefully will contribute uh, and in the future to U.S. foreign policy is uh, that uh, we have to be very careful when we think about issues when we're in the middle of it uh, to make assumptions about the outcome and you should always uh, question your assumptions and because uh, we made an assumption that was reasonable at that time uh, by we I mean the, the government as a whole not me personally uh, which was that the Soviet Union would ultimately prevail in Afghanistan. I said it was reasonable because if you looked at the size of the Soviet Union, a huge country, and Afghanistan, a little country on its border, then the Soviet Union had not disintegrated, so Afghanistan was a neighbor of the Soviet Union. And, and given the record of the Soviet Union, we, it had a doctrine called the Brezhnev Doctrine at that time, in which once a country had turned pro-Soviet, it would not be allowed to leave uh, the Soviet alliance that uh, therefore the conclusion was that they would do what's necessary, the Soviets, to win in Afghanistan. In response, what our objective was to make that victory, ultimate victory for the Soviets, very expensive. And uh, so they wouldn't do it again in places like Pakistan or Iran. And we didn't care, uh, as we were doing that, about what would the 
happen after the Soviet withdrawal because we didn't think there would be a post-withdrawal of Soviets. And most of our assistance, unfortunately, went to more extremist elements who fought the hardest, uh, the assumption was. And then after the Soviets did decide to withdraw, we didn't work with the Afghans and others to put a government together, we disengaged. Mm. And Afghanistan became anarchic. These groups that we had supported fought each other. Kabul, uh, the capital of Afghanistan, was destroyed in that civil war. And in the vacuum that was created, ungoverned territories that were created and the extremist groups that were there, Al-Qaeda found a home. And, uh, and ultimately, as you know, Al-Qaeda attacked uh, the United States uh, planning had taken place in Afghanistan, and then we had to go back in, in, in a much bigger way with a lot more cost than what it would have taken, in my judgment, had we paid attention in the 1980s about the post-Soviet Afghanistan and had not disengaged. And when we did go back, uh, and you know, you were ambassador and you, you were part of that the sort of return to Afghanistan after the failures uh, you know, uh, in the 90s, what did you assess when you got there, uh, and, and how did you assess the, the U.S. policy? Do you think that there was a, more of an innate understanding about tribalism and factionalism, or do you think that that lesson was still not learned post 9-11? Well, I mean, I, was, of course, myself was shocked by what I found as somebody who had paid attention uh, throughout the 1980s, 90s, uh, uh, because I did care about Afghanistan whether I was in government or not, whether even I had responsibility for it in the government, I had an eye uh, on Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, the devastation uh, was unbelievable. Uh, uh, Kabul was like a dead city. There uh, uh, were hardly any cars on the road. Uh, people looked very withdrawn. Uh, stores were empty. Uh, I went to from one district to another of the city of Kabul, including the school that I had gone to myself, uh, Ghazi, uh, was totally destroyed and some walls only stood. My home uh, that where I had lived as a kid was totally destroyed. And when talking about the infrastructure uh, with the government uh, in terms of communications, I had to carry these big satellite phones to distribute to the international community and to the government so they could communicate with each other. And there was hardly any money in the government bank account. So I was amazed by the magnitude of the requirements to make Afghanistan work. Mm. And, uh, 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 communicate uh, uh, the, what that we gotten ourselves involved in, given where things were, and to bring it to a level where the country could work. Because we uh, uh, decided, the president decided that we would not want Afghanistan to become a sanctuary for terrorists again. So in order for that to happen, it had to have a more functioning place. Also, our policy evolved over time. Initially, we didn't want to do any nation building or state building. Uh, as, as right now, the, when you listen to political debate, everyone says, well, no, we shouldn't be nation building or state building. That was the case. But I think we learned over time that the only way to succeed for us in our objective to have Afghanistan not be a base uh, for terrorists again, it had to be a country that more and more worked for the Afghans at functional institutions, and, and that would take a very long time to do. And uh, uh, 
we embraced the idea more and more of helping them solve their problem so that we could solve our problem and not to be the policeman of Afghanistan indefinitely. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, isn't it? I think people are concerned that that is what the role of the United States has become, not just in Afghanistan, but in Iraq. Uh, and, you know, we can go beyond as well to, sure. to other nations that we're seeing crumbling around us, Syria, Libya, you name right. it. Um, does it come down essentially to leadership, whether right. it's leadership of the current president of the United States or, you know, the then president of the United States, um, or the leadership in Afghanistan, because you went to school, you actually you know, knew Ashraf Ghani. You very were well. Very friendly. Yes. Um, what do you think of, of him as a leader? And do you think that it falls upon a leader to actually solve all of these problems, or it falls upon much more and more integral pieces of a puzzle to actually be able to do it? Well, I think leadership is vital. I mean, whether it's ours uh, in our own country, or uh, whether it is in Afghanistan or anywhere else. and. Uh, 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 the challenge is uh, when we see this uh, uh, region of the world, and I'll come to Dr. Ghani, uh, uh, going through a crisis of a civilizational level, uh, like Europe was for several centuries. It was going through a series of crises, uh, the Thirty Year Wars, then uh, you know, ultimately in, in the 20th century, two world wars. It was the dysfunctionality of Europe that was the problem of the world. Uh, Americans, or uh, some of the early Americans, were in, running away from the problems of Europe. Uh, uh, and uh, it took these terrible wars, and then the emergence of the Soviet Union, and our involvement, very massive by comparison to what we're doing now. Uh, you know, in Afghanistan, we have less than 10,000 troops, uh, but uh, you know, in Europe, we have hundreds of thousands go to war. Uh, uh, that a new order was established that kept the peace and made Europe more functional, more democratic, more free, more prosperous. Now, the center of gravity of global problems, so to speak, the challenge of the world has shifted southward in the crisis of the broader Middle East, unfortunately, in the last several decades. And it would require uh, leadership inside those countries uh, maybe it won't happen during my lifetime. Maybe it'll happen during your lifetime. Of course, we would like to see it happen <laughs> very soon for our sake, for their sake, uh, to accept each other for the Shia Sunni uh, crisis right now of a sectarian war. Why can't they both accept each other as equal good Muslims? Uh, the Iranian-Saudi rivalry, the president talked about it, President Obama, in his interview with uh, Atlantic, uh, why can't they coexist and agree on some rules like Westphalia happened mm -hmm. in Europe, a new Westphalia agreement f between these powers for the region? Uh, what about kind of some sort of a reform movement inside uh, Islam that uh, 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 agree on how prosperity and influence and stability can be achieved? Because the, at the root of the crisis, in my view, is that Muslims believe that Islam was the last uh, religion revealed by God, uh, and that it, was, it is the perfect religion, the ultimate uh, word of God. And there is a real crisis that especially some uh, religious, uh, 
particularly radical religious uh, Islamists feel uh, that we should be dominant uh, because we are the perfect uh, uh, religion. We had the last word from God. And it is a conspiracy of the non-Muslims, the West in particular, that has kept us down. We need to confront them. We need to expel them. We need to be at war with them until uh, uh, we prevail. So therefore, this has become not only a challenge for them. Mostly, uh, this is a war within Islam, mostly. There are lots of moderate, lots of secular Muslims. Uh, well, you're and right. Then that it's a, a problem for the world. A war against you know Muslims because as we as we you know as it fails I think often to get reported in the media. But the victims of ISIS and the Islamic State tend to be Muslims more than non-Muslims. Um, you know, you mentioned Saudi Arabia, and I do think it's an interesting point because you're there. So you know, you're 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 having these talks with President Bush. You're in the Pentagon. You're in the White House, and it's post 9/11, and. Did you think that there was enough attention paid to our relationship at that point with Saudi Arabia? Do you think there should have been more at that point where people are having conversations? Should we recalibrate our relationship? Are we actually having the correct relationship with Saudi Arabia? Do you think there was enough of that conversation going on? Well, I think that uh, there was conversations clearly about the crisis of the Islamic civilization, about differences between Sunnis and Shias because you know, the president had come in, President Bush, not that uh, focused on foreign policy, but 9-11 brought it front and center. And uh, so there was a steep learning curve. Uh, 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 what the challenge that America uh, was facing uh, in a region of the world that was not well known uh, to the establishment in the United States. Most of the senior people around the president, the, uh, his advisors, I was a, more of a second tier. I'm talking about the Secretary of Defense or State, the National Security Advisor, Vice President. They were all the generation of the Cold War. Uh, they had fought the Cold War. They knew the Soviet Union uh, very well. That was their life experience, Condi Rice's. National Security Advisor was an expert on Soviet military. Steve Hadley the, uh, was an expert, the deputy to her at, that who succeeded her, was an expert on arms control. So there wasn't that many people who knew uh, uh, intimately, and they didn't have it on their fingertips, uh, what makes this region tick, its history. Uh, and in my book, I explain uh, uh, some of my early conversations with the president and his team about the world of Islam and uh, its problems. And uh, so, yes, there was discussions, but the focus immediately, as, as you can uh, appreciate, was is there another attack that is imminent? How do we uh, uh, harden the United States against uh, 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 the next attack? And then how do we deal with the people uh, that carried out that attack, where did that attack come from, how do we deal with it, which traced it to Afghanistan, and then to give uh, uh, the uh, Taliban leadership, Mullah Omar, uh, an ultimatum to turn over Al-Qaeda to the Americans or that the U.S. would come and attack. Uh, military planning, diplomatic planning, uh, what do we do about the humanitarian situation in Afghanistan, uh, how do, uh, you know, if we go in and overthrow the Taliban, <laughs> how is the new government going to be uh, started? Uh, well, so all of that became uh, the, 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 the policy focus, but the broader discussion was there. So you are, I mean, so you obviously asking those questions yourself as well. When you were 
sent to Afghanistan. What did you view your role as? What did you think that you were sent to do? Well, I had two uh, uh, positions with regard to Afghanistan. In the initial phase until 2003, from uh, uh, January of 2002 uh, to uh, November of 2003, I was based in Washington, but I, I was a presidential envoy that went occasionally to Afghanistan to carry out presidential messages and to help the ambassador, uh, my predecessor, Ambassador Fenn, uh, in dealing with the Afghans. I had known President Karzai, who, who, who was uh, at that time the president of Afghanistan, quite well. I, uh, and uh, so I went uh, to assist the ambassador and assist uh, the uh, President Karzai in uh, uh, Implement, developing and implementing plans as to how to deal with the various challenges, particularly the building of institutions of Afghanistan, uh, how to build a national army, to build a national police, to collect the revenue from the borders because the big source of income was taxes on import uh, and their warlords were controlling uh, the provinces uh, on the borders of Afghanistan and they weren't sharing the revenue with the central government. Dr. Ashraf Ghani uh, became a finance minister at that time, working with him, whom I knew. We were classmates at the American University in Beirut uh, earlier, and we had come to America together even before then to, to develop plans and policies and help them implement those. Uh, uh, because uh, the idea from get-go was to get Afghanistan to stand on its own feet as soon as possible, and 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 that required dealing with these issues. How how good do you think that you know how well do you think that that was was accomplished? I mean, do you think that it, it is on its own feet? Because I've got a comment here from M Ali Karimi who says, uh, Afghan economy is falling apart. The youth are fleeing the country in huge numbers. You advocated for Ghani in 2014 elections to become president. How do you assess his performance? so far? Yes. Well, I think that uh, uh, there are two points to be made. I, I, I think she makes uh, excellent point on what is going on right now. Uh, the economic problems are quite severe. We see on television uh, so many people, young Afghans are leaving the country. Uh, but with those problems, and I'll come back to address them, Afghanistan has come a long way uh, since 2002 when I went there after 30 plus years again uh, to Afghanistan. As I said, Kabul was a dead city. Uh, 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 the economic uh, standards of living have gone uh, quite high compared to where they were, not by comparison to uh, developed economies, the number of kids going to school, uh, health uh, services, Telephone, I mentioned the story of taking satellite phones. Now 18,000 cell phones, 18 million cell phones, four cell phone companies operate. Uh, uh, the situation of women by uh, comparison to where they were now, they have a long way to go. One of the issues uh, that uh, we uh, in the United States are a very impatient people, we want it now and we want it immediately, is that process of state building, nation building, are very protracted and long-term prospect. And the reason for the current uh, set of problems in part have to do with the fact that uh, we thought Afghanistan was getting along, uh, building its institutions, so we wanted to reduce 
the American force and footprint uh, that the Obama administration. I, I would have thought that the pace of reduction was much too fast, but uh, the logic was too, was too fast. But I understand the president's logic was that you know, the Afghans need to be incentivized to take on more responsibility earlier. At one time, we had over 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. Now we have less than 10,000. Yeah. Uh, and they're holding. It's, it's a problematic situation, but they're holding. Also, a lot of Afghans worked for uh, the U.S. troops uh, when they were there as interpreters, as providers of services. And that also impacted the economy negatively. And I think she does make a good point about the government. Uh, the elections was very contested, and John Kerry went and uh, put a coalition government together of the two leading candidates of the second round. And that government has not uh, worked as well as I'm sure they ha uh, hope uh, they hoped for and what we had hoped for. So uh, uh, does there uh, need to be new leadership then? I mean, if we're talking about solving the problems and you were emphasizing just how important leadership is. Yes. Do you think that it's time for Ashraf Ghani to step aside? Do you think that needs to be new leadership in Afghanistan? No, I, I think uh, I would say uh, in the first instance, uh, the Ashraf Ghani and Dr. Abdullah need to work better together. Uh, they need to rise to the occasion and given the uh, challenges uh, that Afghanistan faces. Uh, um, Ashraf Ghani is highly educated, uh, uh, has enormous uh, expertise and talent with regard to state building, nation building. He has worked in the World Bank. Other nations uh, have, sought, uh, have sought his advice when he was not the president of Afghanistan. How do they uh, fix their situation? Uh, uh, so I would think that the, another election is coming uh, in, in, in three four, uh, to four years. So between now and then, it's very important to help these leaders uh, to w work better together to address the problems that they face. The mother of the problems of Afghanistan, however, is one issue which you haven't come to uh, uh, that I'd like to mention, and that is uh, uh, Pakistan-Afghanistan relations, which uh, because the, the Taliban, after they were uh, driven out of Kabul, they took refuge in Pakistan, and a sanctuary has developed there uh, that has uh, destabilized Afghanistan uh, and has made the job of making Afghanistan work harder. Uh, it's taken much longer, because when you have an insurgency which has a sanctuary, defeating that insurgency becomes that much harder. Uh, we learned that in Vietnam, for example, ourselves. How so difficult that we need to deal with. Well, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, how people I think now sort of, when we talk about the Taliban as, a, you know, just, a, just as an example, we tend to think of it as a weakened body. Yes. Uh, and the, this idea that it doesn't have the kind of power, it doesn't wield the sort of uh, power that it used to and doesn't strike right. the same kind of fear, perhaps, right. as some would have thought it would continue to do so, you know, given right. its presence. Right. Do you think that it's almost like a dormant force? Do you think that we will see a sort of push and rise of the Taliban again in the same way that we did 15 years ago now? And do you think that Pakistan does still have to do a lot more to actually curtail the yes. Taliban force right. in its country? I, well, the, on the second point, absolutely yes. And I believe that uh, we need to press Pakistan, we, the United States and the international community, uh, to confront with the Taliban with two options. If they 
go to peace. Uh, sit with the government, Ashraf Ghani's government and Dr. Abdullah's government. They, they have said they would uh, want to sit across from the table and negotiate peace with the Taliban. And the Taliban are saying no. So Pakistan, uh, which is the recipient of a lot of US assistance uh, and uh, is, uh, is a major non-NATO ally of the United States, uh, uh, it should, Pakistan should tell the Taliban that if they participate in the peace process, as the government of Afghanistan has offered, that Pakistan would help them, but that no more uh, they would allow them, Pakistan would not allow the Taliban to use Pakistani soil to attack, to train, to uh, recover from war in Afghanistan, because uh, radicalism in Afghanistan, Talibanism in Afghanistan, has also produced Talibanism in Pakistan. Uh, now there is a powerful Pakistani Taliban movement. And Pakistan cannot really succeed in defeating the ta Pakistani Taliban if it harbors the Afghan Taliban and nurtures it. So that is vital in my view. Do you view. think the U.S. should then withhold or use the aid that it's giving to Pakistan as a bargaining chip in actually incentivizing Pakistan to have that kind of serious conversation with the Taliban? I think that plus uh, a, a very strong engagement at a very high level uh, by Secretary of State uh, uh, to bring Afghanistan and Pakistan together uh, to deal with the f underlying issues that make Pakistan want to do this. Uh, uh, there are a number of issues that separate Afghanistan and Pakistan, and uh, it requires diplomacy, backed by pressure always, uh, to uh, come up uh, with, uh, with an answer. I think the uh, administration that I was a part of uh, we did not succeed, we did not put, in my view, enough effort at the beginning on this issue. It took us a long time to come to a judgment that the sanctuary was being developed, that Pakistan was, in a sense, playing a double game, being both ally and adversary at the same time. And then uh, uh, we, 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 we didn't do, obviously, uh, uh, what would have been necessary to bring about an agreement between Afghanistan and Pakistan that could have dealt with the sanctuary. But uh, both pressure and diplomacy to, in the service of finding an agreement uh, is very important. Well, that idea of pressure and diplomacy, we saw that rather recently with the Iran nuclear deal, where right. for, for many months, uh, you know, a couple of years behind closed doors, there was this pressure and diplomacy, then we sort of saw it out in the forefront. You actually met with Khomeini right. in 78. You right. can count that in your book as well. Right. Um, how do you think the United States should be viewing its current relationship with Iran, uh, particularly right. when it comes to trying to stabilize what's happening in Syria? Well, I am uh, a strong believer uh, in, in this mix of pressure and, and engagement and diplomacy. I've never understood even the administration that I was a, party, a part of that we wouldn't want to talk to uh, or engage uh, with a potential or an actual adversary. Do you think the Bush administration should have engaged with Iran? And I argued for it at that time. I, I ultimately raised it from back that with President Bush himself. That how could, uh, why was it that, uh, uh, and I tell the story in the book in detail, that when I was in Afghanistan as ambassador on the other side of the Iranian border, I was allowed to talk to the Iranians, cajole them, pressure them, uh, embarrass them, threaten them uh, uh, at times. But on the other side of the Iranian border, when I moved to Iraq, I wasn't allowed to talk to them. Uh, so I, I found that uh, surprising. And yet our rhetoric was very uh, tough 
but on the other hand, uh, Iran was doing things uh, against us, against uh, Iraqis uh, in Iraq with these new IEDs, uh, Americans uh, that were being used, produced in Iran, sent by Iran to Iraq. Americans were getting killed. That I believe that we ought to, at that time, argued we should pressure uh, them on this. We should uh, go after their assets in Iraq that they had or their uh, officials from the Revolutionary Guard that came there, but at the same time uh, to uh, to engage, to, uh, to see what it is that uh, uh, they're doing and why, and to explain to them the consequences of, of, of the continued of their action. Ultimately, President Bush uh, did uh, acquiesce, uh, agree to that, although it took us a long time uh, to arrange uh, those conversations. But I, I do believe that uh, uh, we should be open to diplomatic relations with Iran. We should uh, have a, a engagement with them on regional issues, uh, as well as on, on, on the nuclear issue, on the missile issue. Uh, those, uh, uh, those are urgent, important issues, but regional issues are important. So I'm in favor of a comprehensive uh, strategy that has diplomacy and engagement very much a part of it. When, when you look at the current situation, obviously we can't have you here with us today. Uh, the Brussels attacks happened this morning. Uh, when you're looking at the, the whole situation in Europe and the, the calamity that's been happening as a result of the Islamic State uh, and, and nations harboring terrorists and this idea of Syria becoming uh, this absolute quagmire that it really has become, it's over five years now, uh, hundreds of thousands of lives lost. Where do you see solutions? Are there untapped avenues for diplomacy and conversation? Uh, would you yeah. be in favor of having conversation and dialogue with Assad, for example, or do you think that he definitely needs to be cut out of any process in order for there to be any kind of peace in Syria? Right, well, I think uh, uh, everybody should be part of the dialogue, I'm meaning including Assad uh, and their, their, their backers and uh, uh, the opposition. Uh, my judgment is, but that we need to understand the requirements of success of diplomacy. The, uh, diplomacy is not magic. Diplomacy has its own requirements for success. And that, unfortunately, I think we could have done more earlier uh, to uh, make sure that President Bashar's uh, team understood that they would not uh, be victorious, that the continuation of a military struggle would be to their disadvantage. I had favored the establishment of uh, uh, safe zones. The, the, uh, you know, sometimes some people say, well, we, it wouldn't have worked. We have experience working with safe zones. In Iraq, after the Gulf War, we established a safe zone for the Kurds uh, in northern uh, Iraq, mm. uh, where they stayed. Otherwise, they would have uh, gone to Turkey and maybe what is happening now, they might have gone all the way to Europe. So we should have established a safe zone. We should have done uh, a partial no-fly zone over part of, of, of Syria. But uh, the fundamental point that I want to make is that the circumstances on the ground are very important in uh, how diplomacy works. And then uh, understanding with outside powers. I always argued, uh, thought that we should have talked to the Russians uh, as well as to the Iranians because I believe that among Syrians themselves, the distance is much greater than it is between us and Russia, at least earlier period, although now uh, we are doing 
uh, a little more with Russia, but uh, our relations is in a much worse uh, situation because of what happened in Ukraine and what have you. Uh, but uh, but uh, the key th requirement would have been uh, to do something on the ground. But I'm in favor of engagement uh, with, with, with the adversaries uh, uh, in, in the search of solutions, unless we want to take on the responsibility to win by force and to impose our will on others, which is an option, but that's a very costly, uh, expensive option as we've seen in Iraq and we have, as we are seeing in Afghanistan. Absolutely, and you know, you mentioned that idea of the, the, the tensions as yeah. well. Uh, how was it for you on a personal note when you were in Afghanistan? As sure. you say, you were born there and you were right. there for 15 years of your right. life. Uh, although throughout the book, you pepper your, uh, your love for America really does sort of come through throughout yeah, the yes, book, right. uh, your, your sort of ardent love for America. But was you, were you ever in a difficult position where you were seen at once a familiar You're right. Fixture right. uh, and somebody who people may think, oh well, I can trust him, right? Because he he understands us right. from here. Sure. But also, you were then peddling, right? The other, the enemy, right? The foreign occupying right. force or right. you know, the intervener, right? Uh, that agenda. Right. So how did you balance that? Well, I actually felt a little bit of that before going there, because President Bush asked me to go. <laughs> as ambassador early on, and I sort of uh, joked with him, remember, uh, I came here from there. Why, what did I do that you want to send me back? Uh, and because uh, uh, I wasn't sure how would the uh, Afghans uh, react uh, to one of their own who's gone to America, has become an American, coming back representing America. And he said, uh, why don't you first go as this envoy, as I explained before? And when I went there as an envoy, I felt completely at ease, and I noticed that others, President Karzai and others, felt at ease with me also. And uh, contrary to kind of implied assumption uh, in, in your question, where the Afghans felt the Americans were occupying power and uh, the enemy. Or had their own agenda, let's put uh, they, it that oh, way. Oh, sure. The agenda, you're absolutely right about. and. Uh, but in the phase where I was uh, in Afghanistan representing the United States, there was a yearning there that I found surprising for America. They wanted more of America. I had thought the Afghans are xenophobic. They wouldn't want a big uh, American military presence, for example. To my shock, uh, this is another assumption issue, uh, they wanted more American forces and they didn't like uh, what they called the warlord forces that had tormented and tortured them. They wanted America to provide more economic assistance, more uh, uh, political support, more military support against Pakistan. And, and they were fearful of not so much domination of America in those days than being abandoned by America again. Do you think that is still the same today? No. Uh, because, you know, I've got a comment here from uh, Niaz Afghan who says, Mr. Ambassador, how do you assess the two heads of state, the problem of warlords, the shrinking economy, and the fleeing of the young people uh, out of the country? And you've sort of got to some of those. But the big question, I think, which is interesting, without understanding the psychology of the people, the ground, real ground realities the U.S. went into war, and specifically the situation in Helmand, is worsening day by day. Do you think that Those Afghans, are all good points. Yeah. Those do you are... think that uh, the, the Afghan sort of desire for America to actually have more of a presence is the same today? No, it's not the same. It changed over time. And even with uh, uh, my friend, President Karzai, 
it changed over time. Because uh, Karzai won, uh, I would call him, uh, uh, in the, f the first four or five years, uh, he could not have enough of America as well. He wanted a, a, a deal, if you like, with America in which we could have any kind of mil military presence that we wanted, and he thought we wanted to uh, be there permanently, in exchange for which he wanted America to f solve Afghanistan's problem, build the roads of Afghanistan, build the schools of Afghanistan, build the universities of Afghanistan, build factories in Afghanistan. In other words, solve my problem. You can be here forever if that's what you want. And, uh, and uh, over time, as we did not deliver, especially on the issue of Pakistan, that created a puzzle, a questioning in the minds of the Afghans. How is it that the United States is here? We are with the United States. But yet, Pakistan is helping the enemies of the United States and Af Afghanistan with this Taliban, Akhani network, and others. And they come across and attack Afghan and American uh, facilities and people. And we continue to provide assistance. We fight in Afghanistan, in the Afghan villages. We go arrest Afghans in their homes, uh, suspecting them of being Taliban. But we don't do anything on, on the other side of the border. They would have liked us to escalate and go after the sanctuaries or put enough pressure uh, for this problem to be solved. When that didn't happen, they started to ask questions. What is really our goal? Uh, do we want to uh, have the war continue in order to have a presence? And then when we started to leave, they were also obviously uh, concerned. Many Afghans, although President Karzai, less so than others. So his behavior, Karzai's behavior changed as he began to question American motives. And we also mishandled uh, the situation with regard to the 2009 elections uh, uh, that took place in Afghanistan, where Karzai felt we were supporting his opponent. So uh, uh, the circumstances in Afghanistan are very different uh, now than they were in those periods. I would say the, the period that I was there was relatively uh, a, a good period, maybe the best period of uh, US engagement with Afghanistan, not because of me personally, if I contribute something, I'm. Uh, I, uh, I'm grateful that, that I had the opportunity to do so, but it was the honeymoon period. And then when the problems uh, started, the insurgency grew. What they wanted and what we wanted, uh, uh, the objectives were the same, but we weren't willing to do what the Afghans wanted, which was to go after Pakistan. Uh, and that's why I call that the mother of the problem. Uh, of Afghanistan. So with the intricacies of the problems, you, and you, we've just been talking, you know, we're talking at length about Afghanistan in particular, right. but in the book you do detail about, you know, multiple different areas and regions and countries, including Iraq, as we've said. Sure. Um, the next president of the United States is going to have to grapple with these issues, these ongoing issues, not only in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq, in Syria, as we mentioned, in Iran as well. Um, and we have at the moment the GOP frontrunner Donald Trump, who just yesterday sat down with the Washington Post and outlined his foreign policy. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to, to see what some of the things that he was saying, but what do you make of the general rhetoric from the Republicans at the moment who are running for president? Ted Cruz saying he would carpet bomb ISIS, uh, Donald Trump saying he would eradicate them all. What do you make of that rhetoric and do you think that it's smart foreign policy? Well, I think that our options uh, uh, are really three uh, very quickly. One is to come home America kind of isolationism 
build kind of virtual or real walls and, and try to, uh, in, a, in a sense, abandon a, any role uh, or a significant role beyond our own borders. And the other option is to sort of agree with other major powers in terms of spheres of influence, to go to a pre-World War II situation of multipolar system. Uh, China deals with the problems of the Pacific or the East Asia, Russia, most Europe and Central Asia, and so forth. And we do the kind of Monroe Doctrine of the Americas. Or we, uh, the third option, remain engaged to shape and uh, the global order in a positive direction for most, uh, more security, more economic openness and prosperity, and with uh, 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 you know, the kind of more freedom and human rights uh, spreading. I think that the uh, uh, perhaps overemphasis because of the challenge we, we faced during the Bush administration, 9-11, we kind of overreached. Uh, uh, and as a reaction now, we, what we are getting is kind of an under uh, uh, kind of desire for under engagement uh, coming home America. But the world is going in a different direction. It's more globalization uh, uh, and more interactiveness. We cannot isolate ourselves from the world. Uh, and uh, I believe that American uh, global leadership to shape the regions uh, with, in a balanced way between diplomacy, economic engagement, and military engagement, uh, not that every problem is a nail and needs a hammer, so to speak, but the complexity of problems, and uh, use force as a last resort, uh, and recognize that state and nation buildings are extremely demanding, that if we do go and, uh, and overthrow a government regime change, which has become very unpopular, but there may be circumstances that they become unavoidable. We did regime change in, in, in Germany uh, after World War II. Uh, if ISIS was to take over Damascus, uh, I think many people would say, we cannot allow that. We have to go in and uh, get rid of them, do a regime change. Or if ISIS takes southern, uh, sort of eastern Saudi Arabia, where 10 million barrels of oil are produced, some people would say, well, how? We, this cannot uh, be accepted. So it's best to learn the lessons of Iraq and Afghanistan, how to do things better. We need to reform our institutions, whether it's our diplomacy, whether it's our development, our military, and be smart about how you combine the different instruments uh, to achieve a, a more internationalist uh, agenda that I favor. Isolationism, I think, is, is, is unlikely uh, to, to, to uh, achieve the results that some of those are in effect, although they may not call it that, are advocating. Well, Ambassador Kalazar, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, you mentioned lessons, lots of them packed, uh, the lessons you learned in your book. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. It's very nice to be with you. Uh, and guys, thank you so much for watching. For more information on The Envoy, uh, you can check out the links in the resource well below. And stick around, there's more Half Post Live coming up next.